The book of Joshua. Last week we began a new series looking at this record of Israel going into the promised land. And you may remember that one of the primary uh, focuses of our studies in Joshua is going to be to see how it parallels our calling to advance uh, and to fulfill the Great Commission. And that's especially applicable to us as a church as we've now moved into this area permanently to occupy it and to have an increased focus on reaching people for Christ uh, and making disciples. And one of the great truths that we're going to see throughout this series um, is the power and provision of the Lord to help us. I really want you to hear that at the outset, that the Lord will help us in this responsibility and He will give us victory after victory after victory when we're faithful to Him and to our calling. So Christ has given us a commission, go into all the world, preach the gospel, make disciples, baptize them, tell them about me. And then as we do that, God has then given us the Holy Spirit to give us power and strength and courage to do that. And as we continue to do that, as we continue to walk with the Lord, God will continue to show us victory after victory. Now, for Israel, um, as they're standing here in kind of chapters 1 and 2 are them uh, kind of visually standing on the edge of the promised land, looking across the Jordan into Canaan. As they're standing there, um, they, they have to have, I would think, some understandable apprehension. They have a new leader after 40 years. All of them, except for two, are under the age of 40. They have no battle experience. They have um, really not a, a great legacy of faith or commitment, or, or anything in terms of their loyalty to God. And really, now they're facing enemies that, even though God said you're going to have victory, they are, they are unknown, they don't know what's going to happen, they don't know how it's going to happen, but they do know that their enemies know they're coming to take the land. So while the, the concept of going into the promised land seemed all well and good until they actually stood there, now the reality of actual occupation is is really becoming a little bit more intimidating and the same uh, really is true for anything in our lives in which we have to step out in faith anytime we have to step out in faith we we know if we walk with the Lord that he's gracious and we know that he's sufficient but but when your faith is being stretched and you're on the front line of serving the Lord it, it, it understandably makes us a little bit nervous, and we may be timid, and we may be a little bit hesitant about how to move forward. And if that's the case, if you've ever felt that, and I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands because every one of us would raise our hands for that. If that's true, then this passage, Joshua chapter 2, should really be a great encouragement to us this morning because it's going to show us and teach us that the Lord will fill us with confidence and the Lord will fill us with power to carry out his calling. In fact, he's not only going to thwart our opposition to his plans, but he's going to allow us to experience uh, victories that, that will just intensify our faith and, and will really give us a greater passion for his work. Now, you remember back in chapter 1 last week um, that the Lord had told Israel three times you need to be strong and courageous about what's ahead of you. And now, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, that's going to be put to the test. So, in chapter 2, verse 1, they send in two, two spies to scope out the land to see what they're up against. And I want to just read chapter 1, because we're going to 
uh, establish some thoughts here before we go into the rest of the passage. Then Joshua the son of Nun sent two men as spies secretly into Shittim, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came into the house of a harlot whose name was Rahab, and they lodged there. Now, there are a couple things to notice here before we get into the heart of the passage. And the first is that the command to send in spies doesn't come from the Lord. It comes from Joshua. Now, no leader would say, well, that's a bad strategy. Of course it's a good strategy. You always want to see what you're getting into before you get there, right? If you've ever gone to a, to a campground or you've ever gone to, to a restaurant, you kind of want to get a sense of what it's like. That's why you have uh, apps now that you can look at what this restaurant is like or what this campground's like or see pictures. You want to kind of know what you're getting into. Well, Joshua says, let's, let's find out what we're getting into. So let's send some people in and let's look at it so we can have a sense of what's going on. But this is different than the first time they went in, which is in Numbers 13, where God tells Moses, send in spies. Now at the time, he said to them, I want you to go in and I want you to examine the land which I'm giving to you. Now, very important distinction. Send in men into Canaan, which I'm giving to Israel. He didn't say, go in and assess this, look at whether you have the ability to defeat the nations, figure out your army, how many men you're going to send in, what you're up against, what your battle strategy is going to be, uh, get your action plan in place, have a couple meetings. To turn. He, he never says that. He says, the land is yours, so go in and see what I'm going to give to you. Now, Moses then said, Go in and see what it's like. Are the people strong or weak? Do the cities have walls? But the last thing Moses tells them is, bring back some fruit. Seems strange. But he says, God told us this is a land flowing in milk and honey. God told us that this is a land of great blessing. And I want you to bring back some fruit as a reminder of the richness of the land that God's giving to us. Now, that's an important distinction because the result was never in doubt. So there was no reason for the people to add doubt to what God had already promised. God's word is called yea and amen. It is sure and it is certain. And we need to accept that with confident faith. Anytime you hold the word of God, there is no need for one second to doubt it. There's no need for one second to negotiate it. When the Holy Spirit teaches us and guides us and instructs us, when you're in prayer and you know that the Holy Spirit's speaking to you and convicting you and encouraging you and strengthening you, there's no need to say, well, I don't know, Lord. Is that really real? Do you promise that you'll never leave me or forsake me? Because I feel pretty alone. Listen, that the devil wants to play with our emotions and our circumstances, right? Uh, no, God's not with you. God's not helping you. I don't know. God's not straight with you. All the way back to Genesis. Genesis 3 again. No, I don't know. That promise, I don't know. that if, if you go out and make disciples, I'll give you victory and I'll strengthen you. I don't know. It's pretty, pretty hard work. And, and if you call on, my, on his name, he'll answer you. I don't know. You've had a lot of prayers in life that God doesn't seem like he answered. We hear those things in our head, right? We had a whole study about it a couple months ago. The word of God is certain. Don't add doubt to it. 
Don't, don't say, well, I don't know, it might be subjective. No, unless it says this is a parable, which has truth in it anyway, or unless God somehow says this is not what actually happened, then accept all 66 books with absolute face value and accept them by faith. So God had said to Moses, go in, the land is yours. We'll see what happened in a second. Then the second time, uh, the first time, in Numbers 13, they had sent in 12 spies, right? One for each tribe. God said, pick one, every tribe, Reuben and Manasseh and Judah and Benjamin, take one person from each tribe and send them in because I want every single tribe to see what I'm giving you. This is not just going to be the word of a couple. I want everybody to know this is what I'm doing. Now we know, right, that only two of the 12, Joshua and Caleb, uh, came back with a positive report. The other 10 kind of said, I don't know, it's going to be really hard and we have a lot of doubt and I, I don't know if this is going to happen. Even though God had assured them a victory, I, I don't think we can do it. The people are huge, they're strong. I, there's no way we're going to be able to do this. I think we, uh, we probably ought to go back to Egypt. In fact, that's exactly what they said. If you look at numbers, they, they, they say, we, we got to go back to Egypt where we had been in bondage for 400 years, being whipped with no straw to make bricks in the hot sun, with no food, and our children in chains. We want to go back there. We'd rather go back into bondage than trust the Lord. So, so Moses, you're done. We're sick of you. You're not our leader anymore. We're, 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 we want to go back. And the Lord said, fine. You want to complain? You want to not trust me? You're all going to die in the wilderness. You're going to wander for 40 years. See, in Numbers 13, they were where they are in Joshua 2. They were right on the edge of the promised land, close enough that they could send spies in to see what was going on. But when that happens and the people doubt and the 10 spies say, we can't do it, then God says, you're all going to die in the wilderness. You're going to wander for 40 years because you didn't trust in me. You know, there are always consequences to not having faith. How many know that's true? There are always consequences to not having faith. Not only does our confidence suffer and we become spiritually unsure and inactive, but at some point the Lord is going to discipline it. So I think when you look at the chapter here, chapter 2, verse 1, I think Joshua sends in two spies because he is saying, this is a not-so-subtle statement that the last time we went in, only two believed. So this time we're sending in two again. I want you to remember the lessons of the wilderness. And then notice third, and we'll move on, that they start in Jericho because that was the closest place to see the Lord's first victory. And this applies to how we fulfill the Great Commission. The Great Commission always starts at home. Jesus said, start in Jerusalem, then go to Judea, surrounding area, then go to Samaria, your enemies, then go to the uttermost parts of the world. But it starts in Jerusalem. And in Acts 2, that's where the church was birthed, in Jerusalem. Now, what does Jerusalem mean for us? It means our immediate family. It means our extended family. And then it means our friends and our neighbors and our co-workers. And then it starts to spread. For this church, it's the tens of thousands of homes that are immediately around this building. Within two or three square miles, there are tens of thousands of homes. 
And then it's going to start to spread out to Racine, to Kenosha, to Union Grove, to Oak Creek, to South Milwaukee. We can't go east because there's a lake there, but we can go north, west, and south, right? The point is, if we aren't trying to reach those close to us, we shouldn't say, well, let's go to France, and let's go to Guatemala, and let's go to Mexico, and let's do missions work there. I'm all for missions work. In fact, we're going to increase the missions budget. We're going to support more missions work in 2018, and we're going to try to get a short-term trip done. But the opportunity starts here. If we're not doing it here, why go somewhere else? So our job begins here. Now, We've got that established, so there's a point of verse 1. Now we get to verses 2 to 14. And we see here in verses 2 to 14, and this passage has always struck me in kind of a, an odd way, that there are some unexpected and even unconventional ways in which the Lord's will is accomplished. And in this case, there's a prostitute named Rahab, and she becomes an unlikely source uh, by which Israel is going to understand God's uh, provision. You know, there are going to be times where we find ourselves in kind of unusual and, and unorthodox situations that are outside our comfort level. And I want to tell you that that is an opportunity to see the hand of the Lord at work. In fact, I like the unusual situations sometimes where I'm kind of like, what is this all about? Because that's when you have to rely on the Lord even more and say, Lord, I don't know what you're doing here, but, but you're obviously doing something. So teach me and show me and use me in a way that I can understand your provision and your power even more. This was unorthodox. Why would they go to a prostitute's house to stay overnight to spy out the land and to spy out Jericho? Well, let's see what God does. Look at verse 2. It was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I didn't know where they were from. came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark that the men went out. I don't know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you'll overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them in the stacks of flax, which she had laid out in order on the roof. So the men pursued them on the road to the Jordan and to the fords, and as soon as those who were push, pursuing them had gone out, they shut the gate. Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land. And that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings, the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard it, verse 11, our hearts melted. And no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is the God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now therefore, please swear to me by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you also will deal kindly with my father's household. And give me a pledge of truth, and spare my father and mother and brothers and my sisters and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. So the men said to her, Our life for yours if you do not tell this business of ours, and it will come about when the Lord gives us the land that we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. 
Now, it seems a little awkward that they go to a harlot for help and that she knows that God is at work, that God is favoring Israel. But Rahab here, and we studied this about two or three years ago, Rahab is a beautiful picture of the fact that God can redeem anybody. Whatever your past, whatever your reputation, whatever your problem, however far gone you are, she is a picture that God redeems. And not only does Rahab shield the spies from being captured, but she also speaks truth to them, and she affirms God's plan so they'll have the courage to accomplish it. Now, why would they go to a harlot's house? Well, from a logical standpoint, it made sense to go to her house because no one would be suspicious of strangers. That would make sense from a tactical standpoint. But, but here's where, where the Lord's provision is really established because even though they're in a, in a tenuous tempting situation. I want you to see that that there's an important provision that God places here. Because even when we're in those kind of awkward, unorthodox, unconventional situations, we're saying, well, Lord, I want to see your hand at work, and I want to see uh, how you're going to provide. God establishes one provision that we have to see, that we recognize by the fact that they're at this harlot's house. And that is that even though they were in a tenuous and tempting situation. The spies never crossed the line morally. They stayed completely focused on serving the Lord. And I want to clarify something here because I think sometimes we we struggle with this a little bit. But the Lord will never call you to yield to sin as part of living for Him. God hates sin. God despises sin. Christ died and rose again to defeat sin so we're not under the bondage of sin. So God will never approve it. He'll never say, well, it's okay in this circumstance to sin. It's okay to bend the rules a little bit here so that you can fulfill my will or so that you can live for me or so that you can have a witness. I've heard that one before. Well, I I do this so I can have a witness. Really, show me that in Scripture. We don't go into sin To overcome sin, we stand up against sin. Instead of compromising, we take a stand. So while they're in a harlot's house, well, that's kind of risky. I mean, they're in a harlot's house. What's that going to, what are their wives going to think? What are people going to think? They're over there. Listen, they're there, but they don't cross the line morally. They don't do anything where you'd go, hmm, that's a little shaky. I I, I don't know. I'm not sure what's happening there. We have to be very careful not to ever abuse the freedom that the Lord gives us. Think about what would have happened if they had let their guard down and taken advantage of the situation. As with anything that we do, one decision has huge ramifications. It can affect our personal witness. It can impact our ministry. It can hinder outreach. It it can prevent the opportunity for us to show God's power to transform lives and renew our minds and give us a supernatural discipline. 
that, that word stuck with me this week, that God has given us through his spirit a supernatural discipline to not sin. And yet, how often do we walk around kind of in weakness and, well, I'm being really tempted right now and it's, it's, it's hard to say no and, and I just want to yield. And Listen, has God given us a supernatural discipline or not? If we're walking with Him, if we're walking by His Spirit, then we should be able to say, absolutely not. I'm not going to yield to sin. God would never approve that. And I'm going to offend Christ. It's like another nail on the cross anytime I sin against Him. So I'm not going to do it. Because He's given us the power to live in victory. Now look back at the text for a minute. Verse 3. I promise we're not going to go this slow through the text. Even though they're kind of stealthy, even though tactically they do what makes sense, the word gets out that they're there. Now at the time, and this really amazed me, I've, I've been, uh, praise the Lord, to the, to the tell at Jericho that the city's buried underneath, but, but when I looked at the specifics of the city, it really amazed me. Jericho, at this point, Joshua 2, was a very small city. It only covered about nine acres, which is about just a little bit more than twice our property. So this is not a humongous Chicago. This is a little town, nine acres, 1,200 people. So word gets around fast, right? And somebody rats them out and tells the king, hey, there's some spies here. So the king of Jericho, verse 3, tells Rahab, you need to give the men up. Now Rahab denies that they're there because she knows the king's evil and she knows that she has to obey God above an evil king. And because she wants to protect God's people so they can fulfill the plan that she knows God has his hand on. So she tells the king, hurry up, chase the spies. They're, they're out there. Go, go find them. Hurry, send some men out to the Jordan and, and go find them. But they're not there. You see in the text that the men are hiding on the roof. And they're hiding in stacks of flax. Now I thought as I read and studied that this week, wait a second, that's probably not an accidental detail. Because how many know the Holy Spirit doesn't give accidental details? There's a reason why it was stacks of flax. Because flax has spiritual significance in the Bible. Linen is made from flax. And linen in the Bible represents truth and holiness. The high priest were a linen ephod. It was a breastplate that was on his clothing that represented holiness. The rest of the priests wore linen clothing. When Jesus washes the disciples' feet at the Last Supper and shows them what it is to be a servant and how to be humble, he, he washes and then dries their feet with a linen towel to show them, I'm showing you a new way of thinking. I'm showing you a new way of life. So why does the Holy Spirit say she hid them in stacks of flax? Well, because I believe God is saying, Israel, this is a new way of living. This is a new way of living. You have not trusted me for 40 years. You've doubted me. You've turned on me. You've rebelled against me. You've questioned me every single time I've done something. Well, you know what? New generation, new leader, new land, new way of life. Christian, new way of life. Not the old way, not, not the old paths, not the old clothing of, of sin. New clothing of righteousness, new spirit, new nature, new mindset, new way of living. Holiness, truth. 
And then what's so powerful, and this is where I want to spend the rest of our time, what's so powerful here and, and should fill us with, with so much confidence and expectation of how the Lord's going to use us and bless us are these three statements that Rahab makes. And if you're taking notes, I want you to write these down because very important to recognize what God is telling us, Racine, 2017, through Rahab, Joshua 2, thousands of years ago. Because the word of God is timeless. Notice first that she says in verse 9, I know, I know that God has given you this land. Notice that even an unbeliever recognized God's hand. And you know, the Lord impressed something in my heart this week that I believe is very important for us to understand. We need to know and we need to believe that people recognize the hand of God far more than we think. They're just rejecting it with greater impunity. I think the reason there's such a strong reaction against truth and such a strong reaction against God and the Bible right now is because God is impressing upon people's hearts that his word is right and that Jesus is Savior and they're having to make a choice and with greater passion, they're rejecting it. But here's the thing. The more fervent we are for the Lord and the more we show in our lives clear evidence of the transforming power of God in how we think, how we talk, and how we live, the more we are going to see God impressing on them his anointing and his power and calling them to decision, just like Rahab did. And when that happens and we're fully yielded to the Holy Spirit, when people walk into this church, their first impression will be, the Lord is here. I don't want their first impression to be, well, there's stone on the wall and there's a new platform and there's screens and we're getting another screen in this week so you don't have to all look left. And, and, and the children's classrooms, we're going to renovate those and make those beautiful and clean. And, and I, I don't want them to think of that. I don't want them to think, well, I really like how the worship goes or, or I like that Harbor Cafe or, or the tech is good. I, I don't care about any of that. Because what will impress the hearts of people is if they come here and they meet the Lord. I don't want to have another service unless we are saying, Lord, be here. And when people and we walk in, we want to be overwhelmed by your presence. We just we want to be humbled. We want your presence to be strong. We want people to be getting saved daily like they did in Acts 2. We want to have stories every week of significant spiritual change, how God has worked in people's lives. We want prayer to be a priority. We want worship to be so full of praise, in spirit and in truth, that we're not holding back or worried or, or, or staring at a screen just kind of with our arms. No, no, that, that we're praising God, that there's a sense of God's spirit and that there's this overwhelming environment of genuine love and genuine compassion and then we're doing effective outreach and we're doing whole life discipleship and people are getting baptized and, and, and that, that's what it should be and we're just on the cusp of it 
And if we're experiencing what I just described, there's going to be a prominent atmosphere of conviction and repentance and tangible change because people will walk in and they'll go, the Lord is real. I saw it in the life of that believer and then I came to this church and I, and I walked in and I was overwhelmed. God's presence was here and then I saw how it's lived out every single moment and I know now, like Rahab does, your God's worthy of trust. Your God's worthy of trust. Look at the second thing she says in verse 9. Because she and the people of Jericho recognized that. Now she says, terror has fallen on us and the people of the land have melted away. See, Rahab knows that Israel has more people, but that's not what intimidates them. What intimidates them is that they knew that the Lord was with Israel and they know that they cannot stand against him, let alone defeat him. And let me give you a truth here that's very important. The enemy knows the same truth. The enemy knows the same truth. My dad used to say, he can read. He can read Revelation. He knows what's coming. He knows what happened at the cross. That's why he's going to put all his effort into getting us to be worldly and all his effort into getting us to be content in immaturity and lack of progress. And that's why it's so essential, believer, that we be faithfully maturing and walking in faith and obedience and not giving him one bit of latitude to damage us. Our effectiveness in ministry and our outreach is absolutely dependent on this. And the Lord is looking for people and he's looking for churches who fear the Lord and they fear other people dying without knowing Christ. And those fears motivate us to fulfill the Great Commission and the two Great Commandments. So we have to be absolutely confident that the power and sufficiency of God is with us, which again is why it is so important to be walking in the Spirit. Because if we're walking in the Spirit, he will give us power. You know, I think one of, the, one of the greatest problems that we face in our world this morning is an almost complete absence of fear of the Lord. We deal with terror all the time, ISIS and North Korea, and we deal with, with environmental circumstances, which we know are not accidents, and we have health problems and shaky job situations and financial concerns and even insurance. Who knows what that's going to look like next year. But, but what strikes me is that fear of the Lord is really absent. And that applies to the two kinds of fear. Fear that is on reverence and fear of offending him. And I think what frightens me most about our culture is that there is an outright defiance of anything related to Jesus and the Bible. And the ground that that defiance is gaining every day. Every day it's getting worse and worse. And even within the church, there's a, there's a carelessness in theology and a carelessness in lifestyle that shows, it proves, we do not fear the Lord the way we should. So it's telling to me, when I look at this passage in verse 9, when Rahab says, when we heard what the Lord did, we were filled with what? Tell me. Fear. We were filled with fear. Just hearing about God's work had filled them with awe. So what should it be for those of us that have actually experienced it? 
All they did was hear about it. We've experienced it. And that's the point of her final two statements. Look at verse 11. When we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you, not because of Israel, but because the Lord, your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. The third thing she says is, our hearts melted and there was no courage left. And that's because of the second half of the verse, because the Lord is God. See, the people of Jericho had gotten word of what happened at the Red Sea, and they fully understood what it meant. They fully understood that God is God, that he has control over nature, so he must not only be the God of earth, but he's the God of heaven. And because of that, we have no chance. If Israel's got that God, and that God did that, then we don't have a hope. Because if he could pull back the waters and let them walk on dry ground, and he could give them the ability to kill the two Amorite kings, we have no chance. Now what's amazing about this statement is that Rahab and the heathen residents of Jericho were more amazed and more led to believe than those who had actually walked through on the dry ground. Because you remember what happened to Israel right after? Right after. Oh, 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 Lord. Well, that was wonderful. That was really cool. Special effects. Love that. Dry ground. Really cool. Loved watching Egypt drown. But you know what? Now we need stuff. We're hungry. When are we getting there? Are we there yet? We need some water. Did you see what I just did? I think I can provide bread but we're hungry. And we don't know. I mean, that was really cool, but, you know. This is such an important spiritual principle here. This is we conclude. We need to guard against taking the grace of God and the provision of God for granted. We need to guard against taking the grace of God and the provision of God for granted. Israel's reaction was frustration and little faith, and complaining, and entitlement, not to mention rebellion and doubt. You and I have experienced something so far greater than the Red Sea. We have seen God in flesh take our sins on himself, crucify them, die in our place, and then defeat sin and death forever, but that's not enough. Then he offers us complete forgiveness, complete exoneration, eternal salvation, and, let's add to it, he adopts us as his own and says, you now have my spirit, my nature, my word, my renewed mind, and you have a commission straight from me. So should there be a moment in our lives of frustration, doubt, complaining, and rebellion? Daily, 
We have to fight the mindset, listen now, that sin's just some minor offense that we can just toss out an apology. Well, I'm really sorry, Lord. I probably shouldn't have done that. I'm really sorry. But let's move on. No sorrow, no regret, because it's taken care of. Praise the Lord. I don't, I don't see that in my Bible. Dying to self daily means being completely humbled by our inadequacy and, and confessing our failure but being overwhelmed with gratitude for God's grace. See, Israel tended to be kind of dull and unmoved. But the citizens of Jericho say, when we heard what God did, our hearts melted. We had no more courage. If that's your God, then that's God. Now, let's apply that to our lives for a minute. Let's apply it to our ministry for a minute. The fact that God has already accomplished victory gives us a couple avenues of motivation. One is that we have this awesome opportunity to share the love of God and to share his offer of grace to other people. And the goal is that they will get saved and rescued from their hopeless situation. And Rahab is a picture of that. Rahab says, look, when you guys come to town, because I know you're going to come, and I know you're going to win. So when you come to town, and when you destroy it, because God's on your side, and we don't have a chance. When you come to town, remember what I've done. Remember how I've helped you. And spare my family. And they say, that's fine. Later in the passage, it says, put a scarlet cord out the window, and we will tell our soldiers, when you go into Jericho, when you see that window with the scarlet cord, you don't touch that family. Whoever's in that house, they're ours. Whoever's not in that house, we can't account for, because God's going to destroy the city. But Rahab, if you trust in the Lord, you're going to be saved. Now, any coincidence, it's not a blue cord, right? It's not a green cord. It's not a white cord. What color is it? It's red like the blood of Christ. So they say, you put that cord out the window and you'll be saved. We have the opportunity to tell people, when you trust in Christ, when you listen to the love of God, and you realize that even though destruction is near, and it is, God will redeem you. When we tell people that message, they will respond. And it's the power of that message and the power of our transformed lives that will draw people to the good news. And we have to trust the Lord for that. If we're timid and shy and hesitant and insecure and, and, and whatever, we have to trust the Lord. Lord, if I give this message and I live for you, there will be power. There's power in the name of Jesus to break every chain. We sing that. Second and last, our other motivation is to be fervently praying for people's hearts to be open to the truth. I want us to start praying that people's hearts literally would melt before the conviction that God gives. And I want to encourage each of us to do something as we finish this morning. I want us to do something tangible about this. I want you to choose three people in your life, three people in your life who you know do not yet trust Jesus Christ as Savior. They may be hostile and angry and bitter 
and defiant. That's fine. Or they may be kind of starting to be open to the truth. But let's commit to start calling on the Lord and asking him to melt their hearts. And here's how I want to do this. I want you to write down their initials on your bulletin. So you don't forget, so you don't get home and go, I think pastor said something we were supposed to do. I don't remember what that was. Oh, well, no big deal. No, I want you to write their initials down. So if it's somebody next to you and you don't want, you just or switch the initials. Do something, write shorthand. I don't care. But write their initials down. And then I want you, later today, I want you to write those names down in a card that goes inside your Bible or write a memo on your cell phone or somewhere you're going to see it every day. Let's take those names to the Lord and beg Him to work. Not only to melt their hearts, but to give us wisdom and courage to recognize when it's time for us to say, do you want to know more about Jesus? Can can I help you? Or maybe they come to us with a question. You know what? I'm struggling right now, and I really need to know. You seem like you always kind of have it together. What's the deal? Not to say, I don't know. I eat eat oatmeal in the morning and, and try to exercise, and I don't know. Let's talk later. Oh, when the Lord opens up that opportunity, you want to know? Let me tell you, I used to be like that. I don't, I'm not saying that because I'm better than you. I'm saying that because there's something different that's happened. And I want to tell you what it is. Listen, in a couple months, we celebrate seven years as a church. It's the same weekend as Thanksgiving. And the Lord impressed upon my heart last night. Wouldn't it be great on our seventh anniversary Thanksgiving weekend if we could stand a bunch of people up here on this beautiful new platform and say, remember the people we prayed about on September 24th? Here they are. This is the harvest that God gave us because we talked to these people and we prayed for these people and they trusted Jesus Christ. Let's ask the Lord to melt hearts. Let's ask the Lord to do a fresh work in our midst. Starts here. Starts with our family, our friends, our coworkers, our neighbors. I hope there is a lot of the initials we just wrote down. And then in the next month, we're going to go out in this neighborhood and we're going to start to talk to people about Jesus. Not about Harbor Rock. We're a vehicle. We want to tell people about Jesus. They want to come here, great. They want to go to another evangelical church, God bless them. It's not a competition. We just want to see people know Jesus.